Hi everyone, this is, I'm Enzo and this is my sister Sydney. Luke chapter 21 verse 5 to 9. Some of, his, some, of his, some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they're about to take place? He replied, what I, Watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name claiming I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. My name is Jonathan. It's great to see you. Uh, welcome to Windsor District Baptist Church. Uh, if you're watching us uh, from home, I want to say welcome to you as well. Uh, we are continuing to follow Jesus as he journeys uh, in Luke's gospel uh, all the way to the cross. And we are learning that the way of salvation is a way of discipleship uh, and that is best seen by knowing the way of the king. Uh, that is Jesus himself. Now, you may think, oh, four verses, that's great. No, actually, we're doing uh, verse 5 to 38 this morning. Uh, but I want to welcome you. Uh, we uh, encourage you to have your Bible out this morning. This is one of those passages that I think it's going to put you in sort of one of two camps. It's either going to have you on the internet this afternoon, uh, researching, digging things up, saying, is that, is that really what he, what he said true? Is that, is, that, is that happening? Or it's going to have you feeling a bit uncomfortable and thinking, okay, I'm just going to try to forget about that. Uh, I, I hope that you fall into neither camp, okay? My, the, the, the goal of this message is not to uh, simply send you on a research journey uh, or, or to, to make you uncomfortable. That's not the goal in and of itself. Uh, the goal is for you to be ready, for you and me to be ready. Uh, as we uh, come to, if you don't mind, can you get me back to the opening slide there, Chris? Thanks. Uh, as we come to, to this text, uh, I was reminded that when I was growing up, from time to time, I was called a procrastinator. I mean, maybe my wife's laughing. Uh, you know, so, you, know you, you grow out of some things. Uh, maybe some of you procrastinators here, um, if, if that's you, raise your hand in a minute, you know. <laughs> uh, but, but from time to time, you know, I was known to be a procrastinator, and a procrastinator is somebody who puts off what they could do now until it needs to be done then. And the theme of this message is that we're not to do that, really. Um, and the idea here is that we the, the future ought to focus our present. The future, the future of the people of God ought to focus the present of the people of God. Now, uh, when I was in high school, I took U.S. history from Mr. Rodriguez, and there was a number of different U.S. history teachers, but Mr. Rodriguez was known for being a very particular style of teacher. 
our class was really a series of essay trials. He made us write essays within a 20-minute period every single day, at least, uh, I should say, at least one day a week of our class, often two days a week. Other kids didn't have to do that. And we thought, this is so unfair. Mr. Rodriguez, why do you make us do this? And he would say the same thing every time. He'd say, you'll thank me after the final exam. And so one, two times a week, we show up to class. Other kids, you know, the teacher's pulling out videos and games and doing all sorts of fun things. And we're in there, and he's there with a stopwatch. And he says, okay, ready, go. 20 minutes later, pencil's down. And as we got closer to the exam, he took minutes off. So we didn't get 20 minutes, you had 18 minutes. And we thought, Mr. Rodriguez, this is not fair at all. Well, we thanked him after the final exam, because the final exam was you had to write an essay in 22 minutes, and we've been practicing and rehearsing over and over and over again, and he knew what the future was for us, and so because he knew that, he prepared us now for what we would have to be then. The best teachers, the best teachers, sorry, Chris, I would like you to go to the sermon slides, please. Thanks. The best teachers are those who prepare their students to get passed through to the end. And here as we come to Luke chapter 21, verse 5 to 38, we see Jesus in his final official teaching moment. In Luke's gospel, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. He's immediately in the temple after cleansing it, after establishing his authority. Luke reminds us over and over again what Jesus was doing there. We don't see Jesus healing in the temple. We see Jesus teaching in the temple. We see Jesus telling people about God and his glory and his kingdom. You recall Jesus' rebuke was, you've turned my father's house into a den of robbers. It was a hideout for bandits. You're using the structure of religion, the structure of the temple to protect you and allow your unrighteous behavior to continue. And Jesus instead, he said, this is a place from which the knowledge of God is going to go forth. And so here we have, in many ways, in Luke's gospel, Jesus' final lecture. But it's a lecture that's occasioned by some questions. Now, the big idea this morning is that when God's kingdom comes, the old is forcibly removed. When God's kingdom comes, the old is forcibly removed. Now, you could say... You could say, well, isn't it going to be changed? Well, yes. But in the changing, there is a removing. There is a transforming. And this lesson that Jesus has for his disciples is about what they ought to expect at the end. So here we are, Jesus' last temple teaching. As we said, the best teachers prepare their students to pass the final exam. In Jesus' case... Uh, the, the final exam is really just entering into the kingdom of God. It's entering into the kingdom of heaven. Now, don't get too hung up on the exam language. I know some of you are thinking, we're saved by grace. We are saved by grace. Absolutely. You said, I've been forgiven of my sin. Yes, you have been forgiven of your sin. Absolutely. Nevertheless, Jesus speaks of a, of a testing time right now for his church. And so what I want you to think of of passing is, is passing into the new creation, passing into the new heavens and the new earth, passing into the kingdom of God, as Peter would write, to receive that rich welcome when Christ returns. That's what we mean by passing. 
So the question for us is, are we ready for God's kingdom? Are we ready for his kingdom? Now, again, because we're in this overlapping of the ages right now, part of us says, well, yes, I'm in God's kingdom. And, and yes, you are. But there is a fullness that is coming that is going to outstrip everything that we see and experience right now. And the bigger question really is, does Jesus think we're ready? Because <laughs> we've all had that, we've all had that experience of saying, yeah, yeah, I, I'm ready for this. I, I think I know what's going on. And then you, you have that chat with the instructor and they're like, well, have you got ready for this? Have you got ready for that? Did you know this? Uh, oh, maybe I'm not as ready as I thought I was. Does Jesus think we're prepared? Well, before the new comes, the old must be removed. And the big picture is before this full and final arrival of God's kingdom, the kingdom of this fallen world must be removed. And Jesus, the Son of Man, is going to effect this when he comes. You're going to hear things in Jesus' teaching this morning that are quite disturbing, actually. So I encourage you, don't tune out. This is the class you don't miss. These are the notes you take. Because Jesus says there will be for some the arrival of this day, it'll close on them like a trap. Meaning they won't be aware of what's happening when it happens. That's the big picture. In terms of our outline this morning, here's what we're going to cover first. What don't we know about the end? Second, what do we know about the end? And finally, what should we do now about the end? So what don't we know? What do we know and what should we do now about the end? Let's pray and ask God's blessing. Father, we are your creatures. Lord, our knowledge is limited. Our understanding is warped. As Paul writes, we see through a glass dimly. There is instability, Lord, in all areas of our lives. And yet, through the power and the perfecting work of your Holy Spirit, we have this hope that we will share in your glory. But as Jesus says, there will be testing. And so, God, we pray that this would be a preparation time this morning. That there would be real clarity that comes. That it wouldn't just be the words of an individual, but it would be the words of the King himself that shape our hearts. Father, we know that it is only, only through the foolishness of what is preached, this message of a, of a died and rising Messiah, Lord, that you come in power. And so we ask that this morning in Christ's name. Amen. All right. What we don't know, what do we know, and what should we know about the end? I'm just going to give you a bit of an overview of, of this section, and I, I can't underscore for you how important this is, because Luke's recording for us a conversation. And, and if you, have you ever sort of accidentally left your phone on and it's recording of a conversation? I had this experience once where uh, a family member was about to text me and they clicked the record button, but it was speech to text. And so I had speech to text, but it wasn't just from one person, it was from six people in a room. You ever had that experience? 
Yeah, it was a weird text message that I got. It was very strange. And, and then, but the more I sat with it, the more I realized, oh, this isn't, this isn't someone just talking directly to me. This is not a linear conversation. I'm actually listening in on something. Same thing with this passage. You're listening in on something. And Luke's recording for you in this account of this address of Jesus how this conversation is unfolding. So the first thing we need to realize is that this comes out of a, an observation from, from certain people. Jesus is just made an observation himself about the widow putting her two mites into the treasury of the temple. And he made this statement to say that she gave more than everybody else. And I imagine someone thinking, I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> so they were grabbing on to something that was really tangible and they said, well, you know, speaking of gifts, <laughs> speaking, of, speaking of gifts to the temple, Jesus, look how beautiful this temple has been presented. Look at how wonderful this temple is. Isn't it impressive? And Jesus' reply is to say, well, actually, there isn't going to be one of these stones left on top of the other one, which would have been totally unexpected. <laughs> but it also ushers into this conversation about the end. Now, for us, we may say, you know, looking back through the eyes of history, okay, yeah, the Jerusalem was sacked in AD 70. We know that, we know that the Romans, they, they destroyed the temple, that this is the second temple. This is the one that Herod built, not the one that Solomon built. So we know historically that happened, and we sort of take it for granted. Okay, Jesus is, you know, talking about the divine foreknowledge. Yeah, this is what happened. But we don't really appreciate the gravity of what he just said. And you read verse 7, and you're like, oh, this is an interesting turn of the conversation. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they're about to take place? And you might read this and think, oh, isn't this really interesting? You know, some of the disciples, they were just really keen about the end times. I want to put it to you another way. Jesus has just said that the very structure, the very place in all the earth that a person can go and know they're going to connect with God, that that very structure that facilitates that is going to be wiped out and destroyed. That's what he's just told them. That's some earth-shattering news. They want to know, okay, when is this going to happen? And how are we going to know about it? Now, why would it be so urgent? You know, we live in an age of, oh, churches, you know, the congregation gets old and, and they die and, you know, maybe they sell the building and it becomes a coffee shop or they sell the building and it becomes a restaurant. Maybe they bulldoze it and put up some part. We, we sort of think in this sort of transience with our building and our culture. We're a fairly young country here in Australia. But, but this is the one place. And I want to put it to you this way. If there's no place on earth where someone can go to connect with God, then the people of God are to be left thinking, well, didn't God say he was going to dwell with us? Didn't God say he was going to make a home among us? You see, it really throws their whole view of God and his plan and salvation. It really sort of tips it on its head when Jesus says, this whole structure is going to be knocked out. And I think it's this that makes the best sense of why you have this discussion of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem 
which flows into this discussion of the end of history. So Jesus in verses 8 to 11, he then previews the end. After that, he, he sort, of, sort of takes a step back in time in verses 12 to 19, and he prepares the disciples he's talking to then, and he, and, and he really foretells a lot of what you see unfold in the book of Acts, verses 12 to 19. Yes, while applicable to us today, but were specifically applicable and specific, specifically fulfilled for those people he was talking to. And then he begins to answer their question about the sign and about the things that they'll notice in verse 20. But there's a bit of a break. It might not read like a break between verse 24 and 25, but the language Jesus uses sort of indicates that there's a break because he begins to talk about a sign for the end of the temple, and then he talks about a sign for the end of the earth and the heavens, or signs. So there's one sign that he gives for the destruction of the temple, and then there's multiple signs that he gives for the end of the earth and the heavens. And then finally, he wraps it all up by trying to encourage readiness, urging readiness for anyone who would hear his words. That's the overview. Here's Jesus' timeline. I'm just going to warn you in advance. It's not as detailed as you would like it to be. <laughs> all right? There is an order in what Jesus says. There is a timeline, but here's what it is. There will be persecution of his disciples. There will be a destruction of the temple in the city of Jerusalem. There will be the times of the Gentiles. And then there will be what I'm just sort of terming as signs or omens, the shaking, the suffering, anguish, and the coming of the Son of Man. And the coming of the Son of Man immediately issues in the end, which is also the redemption of the people of God. Here's where we are. There has been persecution of his disciples. It is still going on to this day. The temple has been destroyed. We are in what the Bible would call the times of the Gentiles. Romans chapter 11, uh, Paul saying that Gentiles have been grafted into this, this plant that God has been growing through the nation of Israel. You Gentiles have been brought into that. That's where we are. So, are we clear? <laughs> what do we know? What don't we know? Excuse me, what do we know? And what should we do now? What don't we know? We don't know specific dates. We don't know when the end will come. Jesus says, no one knows the day or the hour, not even the Son of Man. So the moment you pick up a pencil and walk up to your calendar and circle and say, Jesus is coming back here, you are wrong. You're absolutely wrong. No one knows the day or the hour. Jesus said in a number of places, in a number of times, that, that it's going to be as it was in the days of Noah. People are going to be going about their lives. There's going to be weddings being conducted. There's going to be meals being prepared. There's going to be all these things going on. We don't know the exact day. So if you're waiting for the, if you're waiting for that, and I know people love to make charts, but if you're waiting to figure out that exact day, you're not going to know it. Jesus said he doesn't even know it. Secondly, you don't know the names, meaning you don't know who the key players are going to be. 
The Bible talks about these people in categorical terms. You have the man of lawlessness. In Revelation, you have the beast and the prophet. What you don't have is the first name and the surname of the person of who it is. He says also as a warning to his disciples, he says people are going to come saying that they're me. Jesus said don't believe them. So again, this, this idea that we've identified the names of the key players is false. You may have guesses, you may have hunches, you may have your own thoughts. I don't know. And I'm not saying don't think in those ways. It's important to be discerning. But, but I'll just say there's a lot of church history where people have thought they've identified the Antichrist, where they thought they've identified the beast, and we're still here. Now, are there spiritual elements at work behind this? Absolutely. Thirdly, we don't know the exact places specifically where these devastations will occur. Jesus is going to talk about all these horrible things that are going to happen. But he doesn't say, well, there's going to be an earthquake in Turkey that's going to knock out over 46,000 people in 2023. He doesn't say there's going to be the greatest loss of human life of a natural disaster in a 100-year period at that time. He doesn't say COVID-19 is going to originate in China and spread its way across the world and wreak havoc. He doesn't say that. So we don't know exactly the places in which these things are going to occur. He doesn't say that Russia is going to invade Ukraine. Again, we don't have this. Fourthly, causes. Now, I want to be careful here. We don't know, <laughs> we don't know ostensibly why these things are going to occur. We know in the grand scheme of things why they're happening, but we don't know exactly the particular motive we don't know exactly what, what is this pestilence going to do, or that famine going to do. And lastly, we don't know fully the extent. We don't know the extent of its impact on us personally. These are all things we don't know. Now, what do we know? And we'll come to the text in just a moment. What you are going to see, Jesus says, you do know the order of things. We already sort of looked at that. We know the arc of history. We know significant markers and significant places. We also know signs, signs that the, that the end is near. We also have history. We have evidence that Jesus was speaking the truth. And we also have, and this is for the believer, we have a certainty. We say we have a confidence in the words of Jesus. These are things that we do know. And you'll find there's a lot. Now, with that, I invite you to read with me as we hear Jesus' answer to the question. Again, you're going to have more questions than, than we're able to have time for. When will these things happen and what will be the sign that they're about to take place? Jesus says, watch out that you're not deceived. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Jesus understands there's going to be a delay. And when he says the end, he doesn't mean a end. He means the end. Many of you, any Marvel fans in here? Oh, come on. You people are so shy. Two years ago, every hand would have been up. Marvel's popularity must be sort of waning, right? Right? Uh, you know, 
You know the phrase, we're in the end game now, right? Yeah, everyone's nodding. Ugh. Yep, yeah. Jesus says, there is an end. There is an end game. And his message to the church today is, we're in it now. But his warning for them is to watch out. Verse 10, after he says, these things won't come right away, then he begins to sort of drift into the future. He says, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines and pestilences in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. Now, where he says great signs, plural, that's not a direct answer to their question, what will be the sign that this temple is going to be destroyed? So when he says great signs in verse 11, that phrase is picked up again in verse 25, and that's my justification for saying in verse 25 to 28, he's moving past the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, that's Jesus sort of throwing out the big picture, giving a preview. Now, here he comes in verse 12, and he brings it right back to the, to the immediate. But before all this, note the time marker, before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They'll hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison. And you will be brought before kings and governors. Uh, that's like half the book of Acts right there. And, on, and on, all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony. Literally, this will be an opportunity for witness for you. Isn't that amazing? Persecution is an opportunity to show the glory of God. That's what Jesus understands. Peter would write, he would say, to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. The understanding is that there is going to be times and occasions where the name of Jesus will fall into disrepute, and that simply because you bear the name of Christ through your baptism, through your confession, just because you bear the name of Christ, you will then be called to give an account. And Peter says you, that's when you account for the hope. Now, should they be worried and worried about that? Jesus says no. Verse 14, make up your mind. I love this. Make up your mind not to be worried beforehand how you will defend yourselves. Jesus doesn't say it's not a scary scenario. He says, decide now, you're not going to worry about that. Why? For I will give you words and wisdom. Jesus says, I'll give you a mouth and I'll give you understanding so that your adversaries will be able, none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict you. You think of Peter and John standing before the assembly in the Sanhedrin, and they're scratching their heads thinking, how on earth could these people be so bold and confident? They haven't even been to school. They dropped out in primary. These are backwater people, and the only conclusion they had was they'd been with Jesus. But it's going to get worse. Notice the attacks will not just be external. Verse 16, they'll be internal. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. We never invite people to hear the gospel with that verse, do we? Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. Now, if you're like me, you're reading this thinking, how does he say some of you are going to die, but not a hair of your head is going to perish? Seems a contradiction in terms. 
I would submit to you that it's only a contradiction if you're thinking purely on an earthly plane. Jesus would say in Luke chapter 12, he would say, do not fear the one who can simply kill the body. Fear the one who can kill the body and throw the soul into hell. Jesus has a perspective on human existence that goes beyond the earthly plane. And so in a sense, Jesus can say, yes, some of you will die, but, but collectively, you, you will not perish in any way. You will live. Stand firm and you will win life. This is what Jesus says to his disciples. He's preparing them for what's, for what's to come. And can I tell you this? You read any book on church history, read, read about the first century church. This is what they endured. I think one of the best apologetic arguments for the validity of Christ is simply the existence of the church. Because what other, what other assembly of individuals was built on the principal core understanding of a God who died, first that he became human, then he died, and then he rose, and he's returning. You see, this wasn't a religion as it started. It wasn't about power. It wasn't about taking over Rome. It wasn't about stealing Caesar's seat. It wasn't about establishing power structures. It was about doing things like picking up babies out of burning trash heaps. You see, back then in Roman society, if you had a child that you couldn't care for, you left it to die for ex out of exposure. And so the Christians became known as the people who went around collecting babies who'd been left out for exposure. And the Romans had no idea what to do with this. Because in their mindset, what value could there possibly be in divesting yourself in this life to take care of something that's just going to drain from you, and it's not even yours? It doesn't contribute to your legacy, to your posterity, to your power, to your status. Why would you have a, a society of people where status doesn't mean anything, where, where, where the nobility eat around the same table as the slaves that were serving them yesterday. You see, it was these sorts of things that led people like Perpetua to be dragged into the arena, to be mauled for sport by lions. You know what brought the games down? You want to know what, what brought the, the games down? They were feeding Christians to lions and all other sorts of animals and torture for sport. But they watched the way the Christians were dying and they saw in their dying, they were not afraid. And in fact, they had joy. And they didn't fight. And they didn't cave in terror. And suddenly what they realized was they had something that they didn't. And they became the ones who were fearful. And so they said, stop, we, we can't watch this anymore. This is what's going to face the disciples. Jesus goes on to say, he answers in verse 20, the question about the sign. He says, when you see Jerusalem. Now, this is sign language. When you see Jerusalem. Now, I'm just going to tell you, it's not a very profound sign. <laughs> Some of you are like, you know, you're praying for signs. You're like, God, God, if this is you, what I would like you to do is, I would like you to bring three clouds together and form the shape of a triangle or, 
right? Or God, if this is a sign, I would like to randomly scroll through my phone, push call, and have somebody give me an, uh, an encouraging word, right? No, this is not, this is just a very obvious sign. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, <laughs> you will know that its desolation is near. Notice, its desolation is near. He's talking about Jerusalem. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you'll know its desolation is near. Then, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. Now, that wasn't common, that wasn't common logic in those days. If your city's being sacked and surrounded, you don't think, I should leave the city. But Jesus says, get out. Let those in the country not enter the city, for this is the time of punishment in fulfillment. Literally, you could say this is the time of its punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. Notice the particularity of what he's saying. The, the city's destruction, wrath against this people. This is what he said when he was crying over Jerusalem two chapters ago. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles. Here's another time marker. Until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That's the sign. And as best as we read church history, the church got the sign. They understood. There were all sorts of false pretenders. There were people claiming to be the Messiah. There was all sorts of, uh, of trouble and cataclysmic things going on when Jerusalem was sacked. It was a terrible time, absolutely, but the church got the sign. But notice he switches, he seems to switch in verse 25. There will be signs. He's talked about the fulfillment of the time of the Gentiles, and then he moves in 25. There will be signs, plural, in the sun, moon, and stars. Now we're talking about the heavens. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Notice the scale is greater now, isn't it? Now it's no longer, oh, hey, look, there's a city that's about to get sacked. This, this building in particular is going to cave in. You better get out. You better stay away. Now it's uh, the actual universe itself is going to be doing some weird stuff. You look into the galaxies and it's going to be strange. The ocean's going to be tossing. The people of the world are going to be in anguish and they're going to be confused. Look at verse 26. People will faint from terror. The NIV's kind of soft-pedaled it a little bit. Because it could mean faint. It could also mean pass away. Jesus says, there's a time coming when people are going to be so frightened they'll die at the thought of it. Apprehensive of what is coming on the world. Notice we're not talking about Jerusalem now, we're talking about the world. Apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. We're talking about an unhinging in the, in, in the, in the universe, in the heavens, in the galaxies. At that time, Jesus says, verse 27, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. See, now we have the return of the Son of Man, don't we? Now you say, Jonathan, come on. 
isn't this just metaphorical language? Isn't this just the Bible doing Bible things, you know? Making us all hyped up and, and isn't it just, just fire and brimstone stuff? I mean, get cut through to the real meaning. I don't think so. Because <laughs> there's other witnesses in Scripture that this is the same thing. Isaiah chapter 24 describes the destruction of the created order. In 2 Peter, he goes so far as to say, given that we know how all this is going to end, meaning that the heavens will be destroyed and that fire will come upon the earth, given that we know all that, Peter then says, well, how, sh how, how should we be living right now? I don't know if you've been taught this, not, not, uh, maybe you have, but for some of us, I think our idea of the return of Jesus is we'll be sitting there with our cafe roasters, right, in the morning over a bowl of porridge, and Jesus is going to like peek through the clouds in the window, sort of give you the wink and go, I'm here. You know? Or you're going to pick up your app, you'll be scrolling, you know? And the world's going to be tweeting, there's this Galilean in the sky. No. Paul, Romans chapter 8, talks about how the earth, the creation, is groaning, writhing in birth pains. Now, I'm not a woman, and I haven't given birth. If you are in that category, I want you to think about what you do in pain. The Bible says the earth is, is writhing right now. It's in pain, waiting until Christ returns and the people of God are fully and finally revealed. Hebrews talks about everything being shaken. Do you know the end of this story? If you came here this morning and you, you're just walking into this tradition that you've always had and for you Christianity is this little side thing of life and you add it, you sprinkle it in, can I tell you please, that's not how we see it. We see an end to all this. And the end to all this is scary. When these things take place, Jesus says, begin, when these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Now, I'm a fairly nervous person. Sometimes I get nervous when I fly. Sometimes I get nervous, you know, uh, uh, when you get a bit of turbulence in the air. I'm a fairly nervous person. I have no idea. Come on in, guys. I have no idea how bad this is going to be. If people are passing away in fear. But Jesus says the very moment... The very moment that the world is literally coming unhinged, that's the moment the disciples are to look up. 
That's the moment that you stand up. That's the moment that you put your eyes to heaven. That's the moment that you say, my redemption is here. Do you have that hope? Welcome kids, it's great to see you. Did you guys have a good time today? Yeah. We're talking about the end of God's story. Jesus told him this parable, he said, look at the fig tree and all the, and all the trees when they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happen, you know the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. There's a discussion about that. I don't have time to get into it right now. Listen to Jesus' words, verse 33. Heaven and earth will pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will never pass away. Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life, and the day will close on you suddenly like a trap, for it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. So be always on watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen, and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Jesus says we should live now with clarity with sobriety, with urgency, and with expectancy. If you know the future, it impacts how you live in the present. This is not meant to be some big mystery. Yes, there's things we don't know, but the actual fate of what we see in this world that we inhabit is not meant to be a big question mark. Which means we need to live lives of sobriety. I don't, I'm, I'm not here talking just simply in an, about alcohol or other drugs. I'm talking about having an awareness, an alertness of mind. We all know that the effects of alcohol and other drugs is that they, they inhibit your ability to perceive. They, they inhibit your ability to understand what's going on around you. And this can be dangerous. But the danger of being drunk in a spiritual sense is, is that you're not aware of what's going on and it's a far worse fate than a car crash. There's an urgency in Jesus' words, but also in that an expectancy that this is our hope. Again, the big picture before the full and final arrival of God's kingdom, the kingdom of this world must be removed. And Jesus, the Son of Man, will affect this when he comes. So I want you to just reflect on these things. How do you relieve a heavy heart? Jesus says, don't let your hearts be weighed down. And I want to, I'm talking to your church right now because I know some of you, you got a heavy heart, a real, real heavy heart. Jesus understands that, the, that there is a heaviness that comes in this time right now. And so the question you need to ask the Lord is to say, Lord, how do I relieve this heavy heart? Because sometimes with a heavy heart, we try to escape, we try to numb, we try to block it out. But Jesus is the one who can actually lift the burden. How do you relieve a heavy heart? The next question I want you to reflect on this week is, how do you sharpen a dulled mind? My father-in-law came to visit once and he brought a knife sharpener with him. And we realized that 
We hadn't sharpened our knives in like eight years. And we're like, we can't even cut, can't even cut an apple. Can't even cut a carrot. It's like, you know, like sawing at it. He looked at me like, what are you doing? I was like, I don't know. And in 10 minutes, sharpened all the knives. Next thing you know, I'm chopping chicken like it's nothing. How do you sharpen a dulled mind? You see, some of us, our minds have been so dulled because we're, we're running them over. We're running them over what the world keeps offering us. And we're just running them in the world's ruts. And it's just over and over and over again. You need the sharpener. You need to let the Word of God sharpen your mind. That the Holy Spirit would apply the truth. And then you will be able to cut through whatever is being thrown your way. And finally, how do you awaken a sleeping spirit? I hope none of you have nodded off. I'm not talking about just this message. <laughs> if you're slumbering spiritually, you know how you can tell a person is asleep? Their eyes are closed, usually. Their eyes are closed. They're not thinking. They're not moving. All they're doing is simply existing. Spiritually, if your eyes are closed, if you're not moving, if you're not being led in any direction, if you're not thinking and discerning and processing, if you're simply existing, maybe you're asleep spiritually. How do you awaken a sleeping spirit? Only the Spirit of God can do that. The King is coming. Like children returning from kids' church, the moment will come suddenly. <laughs> The moment will close. Jesus says this day is coming, and when it comes for some, it's going to come like a trap. I hope that's not you. Oh, what, oh, what pain that would be. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we want to be ready for Jesus' return. Help us to take these words to heart. Help us not to file them away, but to, but to receive them. Lord, help us to not be like those who slumber, not be like those who try to engage in the pleasures of life as a way of forgetting about our heavy heart. And Lord, would you kindle hope in us again. In Christ's name we pray, amen.